Hey everybody, it's Robert Gowan here at Mentors Military. Appreciate every one of you joining the show. And if you haven't already, uh, subscribe to us. Please do so. And follow us out there on patreon.com slash mentors, the number four MIL, where you can make a donation and help support the podcast, uh, bring you great guests like the ones we have on tonight. On the night with us is a number of different guests, but one of those uh, was on here back in episode 266. And that show is about the French resistance and uh, what you were doing, Joey, to help pay tribute to that. So Joey Ivanov joins me, in, uh, joins me on the show. And Joey, tell us a little bit about that project and what we talked about in that episode and what the status is currently today. Yeah, no problem. And hey, thanks again for having us on, Robert. It's good to see you. Um, so the, the French resistance monument was uh, a pet project I had of trying to erect a monument in honor to arguably what I think is SF's first partner force, uh, the French resistance and all their sacrifices in shaping operations for one of the most significant uh, decisive operation, I think, in military history. <clears throat> so you helped us gain awareness to help for the fundraising by getting on uh, episode 266 and all that came to fruition. Uh, the, the Normandy French resistance monument uh, was dedicated June 5th of 2021. In 2022, June 5th, we will do the bronze placards, the information placards for that. Wow, that's uh, incredible. And and if anybody hasn't gone out there to actually see the monument, um, you know, you can Google that. We'll talk about the website where you can go to it as well to see it. But it was a really amazing, um, not only effort that was, you know, really led by you, Joey, and putting this whole thing together, but also um, just, you know, the individual that sculpted it how it looked and it came out just amazing. Yeah. Stephen Spears did a, a fantastic job uh, bringing that to fruition on uh, how I conceptualized uh, the three figures of the auxiliary, the underground and uh, the gorilla. And um, yeah, it, I'm just so glad it happened to go to a place where everyone gravitates towards during that anniversary. Yeah, you can find things on on the French resistance throughout France, but they're very like obscure places. And you know, being that the decisive operation is right there in the peninsula, I felt it was well overdue of having something there that honors, you know, a partner force like the French resistance and all their sacrifice. They're just it, tremendous courage. I was and, able to see the final thing, but I'm just curious, what are the people there? How how do they embrace that coming? And when you unveiled it feedback all the time, they're just so shocked that a, an American did it and, and gave it to them. You know, I mean, that that was raised by 99% of American just grassroots funding built in Loveland, Colorado, uh, where Stephen Spears busted his knuckles, you know, day and night uh, to make the deadline because it was a very, very, very aggressive uh, timeline. I mean, I think from flash to bang when uh, Henry got that, uh, promo film, which was really the trigger to have a message, and we did it in eight months. Um, and that's with uh, the monument even being held hostage for like a week. I mean, it got it showed up like days before the dedication. And oh my! The cool thing about that was the locals were like volunteering. Uh, there was folks from the uh, Utah Beach Museum working overtime. The monument manager, what we like to call him, Benoit, his boys and. And now uh, the, the mayor's, I think, son or nephew was out there with his uh, farm equipment helping getting that thing out of the crate and put onto the uh, pedestal. I mean, it was just divine intervention, really. 
Um, but I'll never, gosh, I never want to do anything like that again. It <laughs> was last minute too. You got to witness it all. And, and uh, unfortunately Henry couldn't make it out. And, um, and Keith and COVID and other reasons, but, uh, yeah, I'm just so glad. Thanks for thanks for helping us move the ball on that. Well, uh, thanks for all those that chipped in and listened to the show and, and those who heard about it through other means or through those who listened to the show and were able to contribute and help you get that thing um, over there and developed. And, you know, again, it was incredible. Uh, we tried to share a lot of the photos. If you go back through some of our social media feed, you'll see some of that. But today we also have something, you know, new that we want to talk about and you brought some other people. So I want to make sure that we introduce those. So we have Keith, Henry and Dave, and maybe what we'll do is kind of go around the room and, and Joey um, will allow them an opportunity to speak a little bit about themselves and, and then we'll kind of go into the, the topic of the day. So Keith, maybe we can start with you and then Henry and then Dave. Hi, uh, I'm Keith Nightingale, retired Colonel, U.S. Army. Uh, spent 30 years in airborne and ranger units. Uh, I began uh, my first visit to Normandy uh, in 1977 at Omaha Beach. Uh, and from then I've gone back almost every year, every year since I've retired uh, walking and talking with the veterans at each of the sites. 1984, when I was in the 82nd, I took the division over to Normandy for the first time since World War II. And as part of that, General Gavin organized 12 busloads of vets to be with us at each site. The original veterans that fought there uh, were the ones that actually gave us the staff rides. Uh, it was an incredible experience, you know, to have Van de Voort at Nouvelle-Aplomb, uh, a sergeant at Omaha Beach. Uh, we went to the British sites with Major Howard at Pegasus and uh, Otway at Merville. Uh, then we had General Gavin actually give us the walk at Lafayette Bridge. Uh, and going back every year, the you know, diminishing number of veterans, but I took advantage of everyone that was there uh, from 1984 on. Uh, Dave organized that for us as the S-4 Project Meister, and he continued the program uh, while I was off doing other things. Uh, and just an extraordinarily uplifting experience. And I want to be able to get this on film kind of as my last ride, if you would, hopefully not, but that's the idea. So we can capture what the vet said, put a little uh, face behind the facts and put the human side of it. It's incredibly enlightening, uh, much different than the history book state uh, and very worthy uh, of our regard. And Dave and I have tried to be the bridge between the originals and the active duties today. We give the staff rides to the active duty airborne and rangers uh, that come every year for the anniversary. And I can tell you it, it's incredibly uplifting to them and gives them a great sense of pride. You know, Vandevoort can do this here, then I can do that wherever nasty part of the world I'm going to be in. Uh, I've taken it on as an obsession, uh, but it's very humbling and I think incredibly worthy. Uh, and there's a great 
value lesson for anybody that happens to participate uh, in it. Just, you know, I, I'm giving you a long answer for a short question. No, but, I love this. <laughs> uh, it, it's, it's an extraordinary experience that I went through uh, from, you know, the very first days, 1977, you know, when I was talking to a 105 gunner that landed at Omaha Beach or uh, a PFC from the 1st Division who basically drowned and spent the next three hours holding to the back of a Higgins boat prop uh, prop with the bullets zinging off of him until he finally came up to the front. Uh, it's just incredible. Every, every location provides you a unique aspect into the human uh, in mortal combat. And, you know, I, I've made the point uh, ever since that it's really about ordinary people doing extraordinary things. Uh, you know, Henry has been able to document some of that, and we hopefully will go back uh, this coming anniversary period and kind of get it firmed up. That's that's the story in a nutshell. Thanks, Keith. Yes, it's me. Uh, I'm Henry Roosevelt, probably the least impressive person uh, on this show right now. Um, I uh, I had the privilege of coming over uh, to St. Mary's in Normandy for the 75th or 71st anniversary uh, years back and just kind of was blown away. Uh, uh, I also was able to tag along on uh, one of uh, Keith's staff rides. And um, as a civilian, it's just, it's a language and a brotherhood and a sisterhood that I couldn't even begin to scratch the surface of or understand. But um I saw the sort of mag magnetism that Keith had when he was leading these staff rides and I was just kind of hooked. Um, so I told him I would help in any way to capture um, the, these quantitative and sort of qualitative elements, you know, because uh, we think about how to carry the torch when these veterans and this generation passes. It's like it, it lies on the shoulders of people who walked with them and heard you know, heard it through the horse's mouth. Um, and and uh, Keith certainly and Dave certainly have that expertise and experience. Um, so it's it's an obligation and a duty of mind, I think, to capture it in a fulsome way. I mean, like as a filmmaker, he he puts you like Breckert Manor, for example, for example, where Dick Winters is barreling in trenches and you're you're seeing that place where it took uh, you know you're 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 living in that moment and it's not on screen it, it's not glorified by music it's it, it's extraordinary um so yeah again i'm the least impressive person here i'm just a filmmaker uh and really just drawn to preserving our history uh in the normandy region Henry uh, denigrates himself unnecessarily. <laughs> yeah. His quality in oh. being able to put together what Dave and I do is really quite extraordinary. Uh, and we owe a great debt to him for his interest, not only as a civilian, but also as a preserver of this history. You know, when Dave and I go away, there's nothing left except what Henry has created and it's going to be pretty extraordinary i'm just, I'm just a fan i i just am a fan keith like you know i uh and 
any opportunity to get over, get over to Normandy again, it's just, it's a blessing. And I'd express upon anyone the, the, the love and reverence the French people have for the American military is extraordinary. Um, you know, it's, it's, you, it's unique to the place. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, as I've said before, for a week in St. Maraglise, you will see more American flags than any place in the United States. And it's sincere. You know, it's not a commercial deal at all. They're just extraordinarily thankful for what our grandparents did uh, 77 years ago now. Robert, I want to bridge something between both what Keith and, and Henry had said. And I think this is as a practitioner, this is what dawned on me the first time I went, 2013-14, when I actually stumbled on the Keith and Dave's uh, um, staff ride. It was the it was the year that we had that uh, bad uh, uh, sequestration, and all the soldiers didn't make it over. And I was assigned in Germany, and I I was able to come over on leave before I went over to deployment with Afghanistan. And I saw this guy talk, and I was like. Right, he knows what he's talking. He sounds like he knows what he's talking about. I stumbled over there and in cities, and I followed him around. I was like, "Wow, uh, this guy is capturing this first person." And and I think what made it a little bit more unique is understanding how to you know, somewhat read micro terrain and put yourself into the combat experience that he's articulating. And I mean, you got to pinch yourself every you know thirty seconds. And you take that and tie that in with Henry's ability to film that micro terrain as as uh, Keith is talking is breathtaking. I mean, uh, for if anybody gives half a shit of what folks did before us, they'll they'll be in love with it. And it's uh, something that I hope to help carry that on uh, when and Keith and Dave decide they're not going over there anymore. Yeah. Great point. Thanks for bringing that in. And Dave? Uh, my name is Dave McNeil. Like Keith, I'm a retired infantry colonel, 30 years in the Army. I was very lucky as a young captain in the 82nd to have the opportunity to go over with uh, Keith and the divisional group that went over for the 40th anniversary in 1984. Logistics officer for the organization, so I got a chance to go over a couple of times early before it, participate in it, be there with those uh, great American heroes, the heroes of D-Day. And I just absolutely became captivated and fell in love with, first and foremost, the story of what these uh, ordinary people who did extraordinary things. Uh, I, I was just totally captivated with not only them, but with the people of St. Maraglis, as some of us have talked about earlier. Uh, they love Americans like no one other place I've ever been, and in 30 years in the Army, I've been a lot of places around the world. Uh, as Keith was saying, the American flags that you see in the little town of St. Mary Glees and surrounding villages are more than most places in the U.S. Many of their streets are named after American soldiers that never came home. And this, um, this fascination, obsession, captivation with the story has just led me to go back year after year and learn more from the people there. And I learn a lot from some of the older French people themselves. There's a whole story to be told about what their life was like under the German occupation and how they felt when um, 
the paratroopers came and you know at that time airborne was so new a lot of these people from the rural farm areas didn't even understand what parachuting was it was just a shock to see people jumping out of airplanes and to this day they continue to teach generation after generation the importance of what the allied soldiers and not just american you got to remember there was uh, an entire group of allies that went over there we always think american um and they're so sincere in their appreciation and it just captivated me i've uh, i've been there 42 times since uh, 1984 and i'll go back as long as i've got the ability to go back and i just i love learning more and more and i learn more every time i go there um uh, the veterans taught us so much and uh you know one of the things i've learned is uh you know everyone who's on a battlefield depends on where your foxhole was you have a different view of what happened and you go to one place and you ask a lieutenant what happened and just a few feet away was a sergeant and you ask him and you ask a private they all saw it a little differently because they were had a different perspective of the battlefield and they're all true and it's been amazing to listen to these guys and hear the different components at the different battles and try to pull all this together and share it. And over the years I've been doing this, I'll occasionally run into a soldier that went with me on one of my many trips in the past. And they'll come up to me and say, hey, remember I was with you in Normandy in 1996 or something? Uh, and of course I say, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember. Of course, there's thousands of them. And invariably, every time they say, I guess got to tell you, that was the most significant experience of my military career. And, you know, it just makes me feel so good to feel that I was part of sharing what I get got to hear from the veterans and share their stories. And that's why this is so important to us to put this on the film, capture it, because, uh, you know, one day Keith and I may not just be here. So that's got to be written down somewhere for all these young people in the next generations to come. I'm so curious, you know, you made a statement a minute ago, Keith, about, um, you know, it's different than what a lot of people understood or learned about in history books. And so I wondered if you or Dave or both could end up maybe elaborating on that a little bit, because, you know, you're, there's only so much that teachers can teach within the cycle of, you know, being a student of history and um, so there's a lot that gets left behind, but I think there's also probably just more to that story that's not shared. Um, I give you two examples. One's Breckert and the other is Lafayette Bridge. Uh, we went there uh, at a private uh, tour with the originals, Dick Winters uh, and his guys on the, I guess it was the 60th anniversary uh, General Vines, the 18th Airborne Corps commander, and myself. And they walked us through, they kind of taught us what happened with uh, <clears throat> Winters being the lead. And what you got out of it was that, first of all, every one of the guys with him didn't want to go. They had been whacked by covering. They landed at St. Maragliese. They walked overland the entire night. They finally came up about 6.30 in the morning to this place called Le Grand Chemin, which was where the battalion headquarters was. Battalion headquarters had like six people in it with the battalion commander. And Winter shows up. He's the biggest unit in the battalion. 
Well, the battalion commander said, hey, we got to take out this artillery battery that had been uh, located by the intel guys. So, Winters, you're going to have to go do it, you know, move out. Well, Winters guys were, if you talk to them, they were really mad. They were hungry. They had just sat down and starting to eat their sea rations. They'd been up for literally 48 hours before and were kind of zombies. And anyway, Winters took them rather reluctantly on what he considered to be a combat patrol. And they're walking along less than uh, 500 meters from where they were located at. They didn't know where the battery was, nor did the battalion commander. It just said it's out there, pointed them in a direction. So they see the gun barrel sticking through there. And Winters stops it and he does a ranger patrol. He drops them all at the uh, by the wood line and he low crawls up and comes sticks his head out and he's looking at a mg-42 machine gun like three feet away from his face for uh, hopefully well thankfully was not occupied but he could see the whole battery position and if you watch the movie band of brothers you know they do the assault bam bam wham and they got it well it wasn't like that at all uh they took the fir uh, first position and the first gun strictly by force of energy, if you would. They bled over into gun one, which was not planned to be attacked, cleared it out, and then got in the trench. They then dropped down, and they spent like 30 minutes eating. They were hungry. They, <laughs> they wanted some chow. So they stopped what they were doing in the war and ate some chow, smoked some cigarettes, took care of one of the wounded guys, and then they went into gun number two and took it. Uh, what did they do? They stopped. They had some more chow. They smoked cigarettes. They <laughs> redistributed the ammo. They got their kind of act together. And then by chance, they were run into gun number three when Winters came down the trench by pure intuition, he said, and saw two Germans coming up at him with an MG-42 in the trench. He reached over with an M1 and popped them both, and then everybody just dropped their ration cans and came in behind him, took gun number three. What did they do? They stopped. They had some chow, <laughs> smoked a little bit, redistributed ammunition. Some reinforcements came in, in the sp uh, in, with three guys, and now Winters had one gun position left with about 50 Germans in it because as each gun collapsed, the survivors ran down to the next gun. So we had a kind of an extra large crew there. Uh, and across the field, there were just, you know, there were three machine guns from a German airborne battalion that was securing it. And they said anybody that got their head above that trench was dead. They were mowing the lawn. It was so, the, the weapons were come, cutting so close across them. Finally, he runs a scenario and he gets into gun number four. Takes it. They got 12 prisoners. He's now got eight guys that are effective left out of his original 13. And he's got uh, 12 prisoners. And the prisoners are out outnumbering the force. Well, Winters looked around and he could see that he had taken out all four guns and that there was no future 
in doing anything else at that position because the Germans would finally figure out how to get at him. So he ordered everybody back out. They low crawled through the trench. They had tied up the prisoners with comma wire that they had gotten in the gun positions, put Warneri behind them with his Thompson, and he had a bad attitude. And as he told us, I made it real clear to them if any of them got out of line, they were dead. Just blunt, just like that. So they crawled out, got back, end of mission. No, not end of mission. He gets back to Grand Chamin with the prisoners. And Winter said he was really pissed. So he went down to Utah Beach and got three brand new Sherman tanks that had just been uploaded and off the beach, brought them back up and put his guys on the backside of each of the tanks. Well, as Malarkey said, we didn't want to do this shit, man. We were hungry. We we fought our thing. We wanted to take a break. Winners wouldn't let them. They put them all on the tanks, rolled down the road back toward the uh, position itself. As soon as they got through the wood line and the tankers could see their target, which was essentially a, some uh, stone farmhouses and the open field, they could see Germans everywhere. Winters guys just dropped off the tanks. And the tanks just went through and had a field day. They had their full basic load of ammo. They wanted to go to war, and they just shelled the hell out of the mansion and ran off the Germans and to war. So what Winters did was considerably different than what HBO shows. Uh, but that's just, you know, one insight. Uh, and, in, you know, going back across the field at Breckert, uh, I asked them, well, you know, what was so special about winners? You know, why did you guys have such a great affection for him? Malarkey kind of stopped for a minute and he said, well, you know, there are three things. Number one, he never did anything stupid. And, you know, that's that's not a kind of a leadership thing, but it really is when you think about it. If you're leading troops, you don't want the leader to do anything stupid. Uh, number two, uh, he said that we had a high degree of confidence uh, in him. If he came up with a plan and he led it, we had a pretty good idea that we were going to succeed. And number three, he was always part of the unit. We always felt that, even though he was able to maintain his position. Uh, he was the leader. He was the captain. We could associate with him, but we never crossed the line. Uh, between an officer and an NCO. And he said that carried through throughout the war. What we saw with winners at Breckert was what we finally saw with them at Berchtesgaden, and it's what got us there. You know, just kind of an example of what you don't get uh, in the history books. The same as Lafayette. You know, we walked the ground of Lafayette Bridge, the exact route that Captain Sauls took when he made the assault. And Gavin didn't know anything about it. You know, I had interviewed Gavin at length, and he gave us the uh, terrain walk uh, at Lafayette on the uh, 40th anniversary. And he came down the road really for the first time since he actually ran it on the 9th of June, and he was amazed himself. 
that uh, Sauls was able to do what he did. Uh, you know, just being on the ground and with Henry filming it where you visually see what Saul saw, you know, it's just an extraordinary effect when you consider the human aspects of what those guys were going through. Text doesn't give you mm-hmm. any of the complexity of that location and what those guys had to go through. You know, the emotions and the sensory deprivation and the complete dedication in doing what they had to do. They knew that at the time. They had to do that. And they kind of reached deeply into themselves and did it. And just putting what they did with the ground itself, which is largely unchanged, I think is an extraordinary experience. And that's what Henry saw initially when he made our first visit. But I think, Keith, for me, you have to tell uh, one of the last times Gavin showed up in the pouring rain and why why it's so important um, to connect these stories from the past to the present, because that, to me, gets me every time. I don't know if you can. um, Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, On the uh, 40th anniversary, uh, one of the first things Gavin had arranged all the vets to be with us. Uh, and he had not planned to do a terrain walk himself. He had basically delegated that uh, to the to the elements that were uh, there that day, but not himself. Well, at the dinner the night before we were to do the terrain walk, he actually asked me, when are you doing Lafayette at this dinner? And I said, tomorrow morning at 630. Uh, and he said, oh, that'll be great. And I just impulsively, you know, stupid lieutenant colonel said, Sir, it would be really great if you could make this and give us the terrain walk. Kind of thought for a minute and said, okay, well, I've got this conflict. I've got to go to Omaha Beach and be with Walter Cronkite at something like 8 o'clock. If you can arrange uh, an escort for me, then uh, I'll see if I can make it at uh, 6.30. So I talked to the Carabinieri, Carabinieri, I'm my mind's in Italy. I talked John to Dar- the Gondarm chief that was there at the dinner, and he said, sure, we'll provide him an escort. So we got the motorcycles all squared away. I told General Gavin, looks like, you know, we got you covered if you can make it. And he said, well, I'll try. And you have to understand at this time, Gavin was in the initial stages of Parkinson's, and it was quite visible. You know, he was shaking and kind of hunched over. Uh, and, you know, he didn't promise to be there. He said he would try. So six, uh, the 6th of June, 1984, we're at Lafayette Bridge at the Iron Mike. It is kind of rainy and crappy weather. The troops are all in their uh, rain gear, but they got their red berets on, and we're all under the Iron Mike uh, trying to figure out what's really going to happen here. Am I going to lead it as... Sergeant Smuckatelli, who was here on the original day, going to lead it, or what? Or General Gavin going to show up? Well, while I'm pondering this, up rolls this Mercedes. Comes right up to the edge of the driveway there by Iron Mike, and I look out, and I see that it's General Gavin. He's in the back seat, and he's kind of slumped over. It was quite clear he was slumped over. His World War II aide, uh, gets out, uh, Olson, 
opens the door, and the general is kind of hunched over. He's got a cane, and he's got on his uh, overseas, airborne overseas hat. And I'm, a, I'm thinking to myself, my God, this is going to be a disaster. What have I asked this man to do? Going to embarrass himself, and the troops are going to feel bad, blah, blah. And I'm thinking, oh, I come down to uh, see him to introduce myself, the courtesies and all. I give him a salute, and he kind of looks up at me, and he looks back past, and he sees all these red berets there under the iron mic. He takes his cane, plants it in the ground, does a 90-degree angle, walks right past me up to the assembled troops, and he is in command at Lafayette Bridge for the next hour and a half. It was an extraordinary case of his force of personality and his tremendous drive to tell us the story uh, that made it what it was for me. I mean, I was just dumbfounded. He walked us for an hour and a half from the beginning of Lafayette to the end of the crossroads. And for an hour and a half, he was the commander of the assault force that day. Just extraordinary. Did I capture it, Henry? That was beautiful. I mean, it gets me the time. I could just listen to you for the next hour and a half. <laughs> totally. totally. Dude, it, it, it's, I love it. Yeah. Love it. Well, he's got that, uh, that voice anyway, you know, that just that movie voice the background of historical movies is perfect. Yeah. Perfect, Keith. So, Dave, tell us a little bit about the NLI and, and some of the folks, you know, here that we're talking about that kind of, are helping bring the mission forward and executing it. Thanks for asking about the Normandy Institute. Uh, unfortunately, Dorothea uh, cannot be here today. She's the founder, chairman, and the, uh, the brainchild of the Normandy Institute. Uh, the Institute is a state-of-the-art educational residential campus located on a 50-acre historical estate situated on a hollowed ground of one of America's most important battlefields, the D-Day Paratroopers Drop Zone in Normandy, France. This educational center and conference facility is dedicated to fostering a greater understanding and inspiration from the heroic leadership of the Allied forces during World War II. The Normandy Institute will connect a global community through education and travel experiences. Chateau de Berneville is the main facility on the campus, which is located between St. Mary's and the Lafayette area, and it will serve as a physical and intellectual location of the Normandy Institute. The chateau itself is historically significant as the German headquarters visited by Rommel on May 17, 1944, and is also the site where the first German general was killed on D-Day. The Normandy Institute is in Picoville, which is about a three-hour drive from Paris and served by three different airports. It is a nonpartisan, nonprofit correction. It is a nonpartisan, nonprofit, and charitable and educational organization. The mission of the institute is to engage leaders and educators in shaping the future of strategic alliances, advancing an understanding of history, and applying this knowledge to complex global issues. Our vision is to be the destination of choice in France for building knowledge and effective leadership to an interconnected world. To do this, we'll provide an educational and residential campus with state-of-the-art facilities on a historic site 
where current and future leaders can drive change. Uh, Dorothea has been working this uh, project for several years now. It's still in some of the initial stages uh, for funding, for renovation and construction. Uh, there's three actual components. One is to provide a nice quality chateau type hotel for executive leadership for groups that go over there, such as uh, General Electric, Baker Hughes Oil and Gas, uh, other senior organizations, commercial organizations that go over and teach executive leadership based on lessons of D-Day. Second is to provide a campus-like facility for military organizations such as the military academies, the Naval War College, the Army War College, um, and other allied type military institutions to be able to take leaders over and uh, teach them about what happened on D-Day. And the third is setting up a campus for uh, educational institutions. And Dorothea has already worked with several colleges and universities in the states. So they will be able to take a group, a small group of students with a professor to a campus environment and teach uh, international politics, international relations, military history, and many other types of subjects. So that is the goal that the Normandy Institute is working toward. Yeah, very, very good. And I mean, I think, you know, people are more interested in it. You can go to the normandyinstitute.org uh, website and, and learn a lot about what Dave just described and obviously be able to support what we're talking about here and um, some of those great things that you just mentioned. I think it's so important to the preserve the history and not only that, but the stories like what was just shared here by Keith just a moment ago, two of those. And, uh, and the way you guys are going about doing it is just really interesting. And I know, Keith, that you're working on really tracing the heroes of D-Day and putting that within a film along with Henry. And I'd be very interested to hear a little bit more about that from you. Well, the idea is that there are 13 primary battle sites, if you would, uh, in the Normandy area that we give the uh, terrain walks to. And this is for the active duties. And usually that's the 82nd Airborne, 173rd Ranger Regiment, and usually uh, a British and a German parachute regiment element. So it's, it's mixed. Uh, depending on the amount of time that we have, we go to the British section in Caen, uh, Merville Battery, uh, where Otway gave me and the troops uh, the uh, the staff ride, uh, and to Pegasus Bridge, where Major Howard uh, gave us the staff ride uh, with some of his veterans. That takes care of two of them. The other ones, we do Omaha Beach, uh, we do Point de Hoc, Lem Lomel, who was first sergeant, uh, of D Company, uh, of the 2nd Ranger Battalion, uh, gave us numerous staff rides, talking to the troops uh, about the whole issues there, climbing up the cliffs, capturing the guns by chance. They just stumbled into them. Uh, we then do the airborne areas. We talked at Utah Beach, the landings there followed by Breckert Manor, uh, the 101st with uh, winters that I've already recounted. Uh, in uh, St. Mary Gleese area, 
Uh, we cover uh, Nouvelle Applaud, the battle you never heard of, but was perhaps the most important on D-Day because it kept the German, a German regiment from getting into St. Mariglis, led by a lieutenant, uh, half, uh, half Cherokee Indian, and also one of those guys was Sergeant Nyland, you know, saving Private Ryan. In reality, was saving Private Nyland. Huh. And Staff Sergeant Nyland was killed at Nouvelle Plomb. Uh, Van de Voort took us out there on the 40th and showed us the exact position that he found Nyland's body and showed us all the bullet holes on the wall that Nyland was standing on. Uh, quite unique. Uh, we then go to uh, Lafayette Bridge, uh, part of the sort of the penultimate assault uh, of the 82nd, their Gettysburg, if you would, of Valhalla. Uh, the city of St. Mary Gleese itself, uh, where the troops came down in the city square. Uh, and, you know, the French related what they saw. You know, Henri Jean Renault, the son of uh, the World War II mayor, as a small boy, remembers bumping into the boots of a paratrooper that was dead in the tree above him. Uh, it was still there the next day, had not yet been cut down. And uh, that's a memory that uh, Henri Jean carries with him forever. Uh, we go to Chateau Berneville, where the Normandy Institute is, uh, which was General Fowley's headquarters. And we go to the location that General Fowley himself was uh, ambushed by 12 troops led by Lieutenant Brannon of the 508th, who were all misdropped troops that were trying to get back to their unit. And they had halted for a moment down a, a small road. And then this big staff car came by and they hosed it completely. And in so doing, they killed the commander of the German element responsible for the entire area defense and markedly destroyed the ability of the Germans to counterattack. You know, the home of the Elgops, little groups of paratroops. Uh, and that was a classic example uh, of that. So total of 13 of them all together, they're kind of the penultimate uh examples of the American experience plus the two key British objectives uh, of the war. And Henry is going to film each one of them uh, and put it together. And if uh, his documentary, The Sixth of June, is any indication, this is definitely going to be an Emmy winner. Okay. Okay. I would go that far. <laughs> capture this for service academies, units, ROTC uh, units as well. I've, being that I've gone on a couple of these uh, with Keith and Dave and, and I'm studying under them, you're not going to get a better experience. And for this to be lost is, uh, would, be, uh, would be tragic. Um, so it's imperative that this this project gets funded at the capability that Henry can bring it. I'll give you an example of what these staff rides mean. Uh, several years ago, 
we were assembling for the Normandy overview, which we give to the troops as the first event, if you would, in the town hall. And I noticed that one of these senior NCOs, he was like an E7, uh, multiple deployments to the sandboxes. And he was just kind of organizing his troops. And you could see he was somewhat bored, but still in charge. We went out on the first staff ride and I noticed him uh, because he had kind of a unique presence about him. He was definitely a commanding influence. Uh, he never raised his voice. He would just make small gestures or say something, and his troops would immediately respond. But he, he wasn't really fully engaged on the first day. Uh, on the second day, we were doing uh, Nouvel Aplomb, and you go down this kind of road to get to the actual battle site where the war began. And we're walking along. I had already given some talk about it. Uh, and we moved on toward the next position. And he came up to me and tugged on my sleeve, which I thought was very unusual for his demeanor because he was pretty austere. And, you know, he, he tugged on my sleeve. I turned around and said, yeah. And he said, sir, you know, some shit happened here. And he was totally into it. I mean, he had just understood the entire thing and what it meant the human dimensions uh, and the kind of the, the story beyond the cold facts. He really got it. Uh, and that, I think, it was probably the best example of what these staff rides mean. You can see it with the troops. First day, they're kind of bored. You know, where's the bar? When do I get out of here? What am I doing here? By the second day, they're totally into it. I mean, there, you know, there is a self-actualization process they go through and they say, wow, if these guys could have done it, then I can do it now. You know, it gives them a great sense of pride, but I also think a greater sense of self-confidence, uh, you know, and that in my mind is the greatest reward that I have for doing it. Yeah. Yeah, unbelievable. And I mean, the more you keep talking about it, I can see why people would, you know, it. They, your voice, just Keith, is one of those where people are going to start listening. It's sort of like the old uh, E.F. Hutton commercial, I think it was. Um, you know, when E.F. Hutton speaks, everybody listens type of thing. It's the same way with you. And uh, I, I could certainly see why people would start gravitating and, and wanting to learn more and more as you begin to to lead them on this journey. And it, it's just, you know, I, I want to be the bridge between the originals that I was exposed to and the active duties that are there today. And more importantly, they're going to be there after I'm gone. You know, uh, you know, what Henry puts together can transmit what you're talking about, you know, that I'm going to be a very happy guy in Valhalla. Yeah, yeah. Well, so Henry, let's talk a little bit about that because I'm really curious as to what it's going to take to pull this thing together. Obviously, you've got a great crew here in, you know, helping you kind of set that up as to to how you want to do it, but what all goes into putting together something like this? It's an historical and uh, training um type of document or program like this. Uh I mean, a lot of equipment um and some able bodies uh is really what it comes down to um uh, 
we're going to be, I mean, for all the tech geeks out there, uh, we're going to be using Red Monstro 8K resolution <laughs> cameras and, um, you know, uh, have some amazing cinematographers who are shooting big things for Netflix and other things that I can't quite talk about uh, uh, right now. But um, yeah, it's just, it's, for me, it's just important to film precisely what it is he's saying and uh with a few cameras uh and uh good sound um so uh yeah we just got to show up essentially um and i think we joey has more specifics on numbers and all that um uh, and and ways to contribute to normandy institute to really get this off the ground um but uh this isn't this uh, this truly isn't a money maker for any of us this is this is a passion project, and it's definitively it's 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 a duty to to preserve and pass on uh, you know these these words quantitatively uh, these words quantitatively through um, through through our lenses and through Keith and Keith's voice. So well said. Going back to uh, what when Keith was was talking about capturing this and what it means to soldiers uh, if you go back and watch um henry's uh, 6th of june and, and he says it there and the funny thing is i've heard this in 2014 he said man i want you to understand what this place costs um with a schmidgen of combat experience that i have uh i was able to uh implicitly understand where he was going with that and it was uh Moving beyond words, and uh, I, I hope, I hope that gets captured in in this project for this uh, this 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 last ride, as Keith as Keith uh, mentions. So, what we're asking? Yeah, go ahead, Keith. That's that's really the message. People need to know what this place costs, and it costs people. And what I'm trying to do is relate the voices of those people uh, as an understanding to, you know, our civilization, if you would, as to what was the best distilled spirited example of what we're all about as a people. Uh, that's really the larger message. You know, I think, too, it's important that, you know, Dave, you highlighted earlier a lot about what um nli is all about and what you guys are trying to do and, and the folks behind all of this mission uh but this is really also kind of a call to action we mentioned that the nationalinstitute.org website and you know it's one thing for us to be able to sit here and share these tremendous stories by keith and others i'm sure that he could share and and talk about the magnificent things that you guys are doing to preserve that but this is really an opportunity for people to step forward and that's kind of what you need here to help move this uh to the next stage. So could you share a little bit more about that? Well, it's, it's, I would call it a passion of purity. Uh, there's not going to be any profit involved in this. This is not going to be commercialized. It's going to be something that tells the tale that can be used by people and organizations in the future. Uh, after we're past, to understand what went on here. 
what we're trying to do is basically just get it in the can, as they say, and let Henry do his magic in post-production so that people understand the story. Uh, there's no money involved. You're not going to see this on a box of Wheaties or, you know, a GoFundMe site. Uh, we're, we're doing this because we're all passionate about it and we think it's important, not important for us so much as it is important for the future that will be watching it. And right on the Normandyinstitute.org page is a support us button. Is that where people can go and support the project that you're describing here? Or um, how, do, how does that work? How would people go about trying to take some kind of action, Keith? Uh, if you go to the site, it has a donation uh, form on it. Uh, that money will be used exclusively for the cost, the expenses of actually doing the filming itself. And it's done through the Normandy Institute, uh, which is a 5013C. So there's a tax write-off credit for that. Uh, we, we don't need a lot, but we need, we need a little, little to make it happen. And anything that anybody can do to help us uh, is deeply appreciated. Not for us, but for the people in the future that are going to watch it. Yeah, I'd like to uh, piggyback on that. The, the target uh, price tag for this to make this happen to the, the quality it needs to be is 150000 which is half of what we did for uh, the, the Normandy French Resistance Monument that was uh, vesseled by Operation Democracy, which is the exact same thing that's happening uh, with Normandy Institute. But Normandy Institute is a, a big catalyst behind this in the educational piece because this is strictly education and we're not there's nothing you're going to be able to feel or touch it's just going to be something you're able to see forever uh on video for uh organizations to learn from so it is it's a tax write-off uh it's 150 to make this uh all the way to the end and uh, i think that's a, a a reasonable ask when we collectively ask uh, soldiers, sailors, marines, airmen, uh, kindred souls uh, who have the passion to learn about our history uh, to be able to capture this. So, and what is the timeline, the expected timeline to, to take this across the to the finish line? We're going to start this, I forgot the day, is it June 1st, guys, that we're filming? Yeah, yeah June 1st or 2nd, I believe. 2nd, June mm -hmm. 2nd. Yeah, and maybe you can do a podcast from there. I got a GP medium at the house. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, no, that'd be awesome. In the backyard, but you got to eat rations. We're going to make it uh, authentic. Hey, listen, I had my fair share of sea rations, so I used to be quite the sea ration connoisseur. Tabasco sauce usually helped kill some of the off flavoring. Well, I appreciate you guys coming on the show and and talking about this important topic and and. Uh, Keith, I could probably sit here all day like Henry and listen to each and every one of your stories. And maybe we'll have to do that at some point, just going down through some of the main key battle elements and talk about some of those uh, those great stories that you're probably going to be sharing on this. I work for beer. I'm cheap. <laughs> That's great. Awesome. And uh, But I really do appreciate you guys coming on. This is an important topic and something I think our, our audience uh, would could really get behind and help support. And uh, again, you could start off by, you know, going back and 
listening to some of the stuff that Joey did initially in episode 266, but now this is just another one of those uh, opportunities to really keep uh, paying forward and and talking about the history and and uh, putting it in a way where it could be stored and shared for, like you said, uh, many, many years to come, Keith. Thank you. I think it's a good cause uh, and it, it's worthy of support because it's about what we are as a nation or the civilization. It's it's much more than just a personal thing. But what we try to do is within the show notes, put in the uh, the link to direct link where you can make a contribution. As the guys mentioned here, it's a 501c3. So that way it's uh, tax deductible and uh, give what you can. I think it'll be most appreciated. Um, Joey, Keith, Henry, Dave, thanks so much for coming on the Mentors Military Podcast and talking about this important topic. Thanks so much, Robert. Hey, just to capture the quality of what this will be at, 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 if you look up on YouTube, 6th of June by Henry Roosevelt, or you look up uh, the promo film for uh, the Normandy French Resistance Monument, I think you get a snapshot of the quality of what, what this really is. Uh, but magnify that. By, a power, by the power of 10, no pressure, Henry. But I think that th this is where we're going, and, and it's, uh, it's worth it. It truly is.